How many albums does a band need in order to qualify for the temporary fandom's treatment? As you may know, our shtick is to choose an artist and listen to their complete discography, taking on bands with as many records as The Fall or David Bowie, or elsewhere as few as The Pogues or Number Girl. Today we turn our attention to a band who only ever released two records in their lifetime, although that does leave us time to dip our toes into a couple of EPs and extras as well. In case you don't know already, let me remind you that all our shows can be found at tempfans.com and in all the other places you get podcasts these days. In the show notes, you'll also find a link to the Spotify playlist edit of the show that includes some of the tunes we'll be talking about. It's my favourite way to listen, and if you do like what you hear, please take the time to tell others about us, either via a review or on social media. And if you really like us, we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash tempfans. Go and take a look at what we can offer you in exchange for a few euros every month. One thing temporary fandoms will never do is compile a list of the 10 best records of the 90s or attempt to rank artists in their albums. We're simply not about pantheons, even if we do often scrutinise supposedly classic albums. Nevertheless, today's artists release an album that is often held up as one of the best of its ilk. We'll let you decide whether it deserves such accolades, but first, listen to us argue the toss over whether Jeff Mangum deserves such plaudits as we bring you Louisiana Psychedelic Folk Merchants, Neutral Milk Hotel. Hello there, welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Um, we are knee-deep in season three. Um, we are recording everything out of order, so I've just stopped saying episode numbers, also because I never got them right anyway. Um, I'm Ewan. I'm Nick. And today, well, today we're doing one of my favorite bands, but I'm not the one actually doing it, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, as we mentioned on previous episodes, we now have a Patreon set up with Ooh. some things in there. Um, you're never going to lose what, what we do. We're still going to keep doing, but it'd be nice to actually, you know, cover our costs. Uh, the links are all in the things and the places. Go and have a look. Um, there might even be a quite expensive one that has merch in there. But we're not expecting anybody to actually do that one, but we sell it up anyway. Um, obviously, there's a Spotify playlist. Um, the best place to find it is either the links via the Instagram page or to find us as a user on Spotify, and then you'll find the playlist there. Also, there are links from the episodes on tempfans.com. Okay. You so- and I feel you really sold our merch there. It's a merch. <laughs> I mean, I haven't designed it yet, but come on. As we're recording this, the shirts I'm going to design, they're going to be shit hot and you're going to want one. There's going to be a sticker. There's going to be a little bit of artwork. There will be a mug and there There will be a t-shirt distributed over a year if for some reason you like us that much that you want to give us money. And they'll be fucking gorgeous. Go and have have a look at some point when this episode has finished. So rejoining um, Nick and myself, uh, last time you heard him, he was doing possibly one of the best uh, David Bowie impressions you will ever hear. Is Lyle Wagonek? Lyle, hey, hey, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? Good. The fly is no longer in my milk. Yay! Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> and also rejoining us is Norway's premium, uh, premium, premier um, bilingual Norwegian English stand-up. Uh, last time you heard him, he was looking credulously at me as I had opinions that he disagreed with. Aaron Troy White. Aaron, welcome back. Hello. Thank you for having me back. You're more than welcome. And, oh, uh, what are we doing today, Aaron? Uh, we are doing the classic 
90s indie rock band Neutral Milk Hotel. This is obviously one for the hipsters and also the people who basically just... I'm editing this bit out. This is obviously one for the hipsters and anyone with a flannel shirt and, um, and me, because I fucking love them, but I don't think we all do. So we will see as we go. I'm now going to steal Lyle's joke. Who is neutral Milk Hotel? Who is evil Milk Hotel? Who is chaos evil Milk Hotel? And who is good Milk Hotel? Anyway, um, those who know will know that Neutral Milk Hotel do not have a massive range of albums. Uh, there's only really two proper ones, but we'll be looking at a couple of extra bits today. Um, Aaron, um, what are the albums that we're going to be covering? We're going to be covering their their first, I guess, official album, Hype City Soundtrack. Um, he did a series of uh, home-recorded tapes for this, but this was the first one that actually got distribution. Not wide distribution, but it got distribution, and that's what counts. Um, followed by his Everything Is single, um, which started out as a single, but then got beefed up into a proper EP in its uh, most recent form. Um, we're going to follow by their two proper albums on Avery Island and the, the classic, allegedly, uh, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea. And we'll be finishing off with the EP Ferris Wheel on Fire. Awesome. Um, obviously, not everything is on Spotify, so the Spotify playlist will be as representative as we can do. Um, we'll try and put links to any of the other stuff in the show notes. I'll just go on YouTube. You'll find it. It's there. I mean, come on. It, you'll find this stuff. Um, so I'm going to stop talking. You're going to hear Lyle's voice after the next bit of musical sting. Aaron's. And we're back. Ugh. I'm going to stop talking. You're going to hear Aaron's voice after the... We've got two Americans. They all sound the same to me. You're going to hear Aaron's voice after the musical sting, and we will be back in a bit. Neutral Milk Hotel are one of those bands, like Love and the Stone Roses, that live in the shadow of their era-defining album. Even if you've never heard their seminal 1998 release, in the aeroplane over the sea directly, you've doubtless heard their influence on any number of the vast field of Indian folk bands that bloomed in its wake as it flew overhead. And it was that true independent success, never quite mainstream, but seemingly every music nerd born between 1977 and 1984 has it in their collection. Yet many aren't familiar with their other albums or even know the full story of the band's enigmatic lead singer, guitarist, and primary songwriter Jeff Mangum, who himself has become a bit of a legend, a man who belted out a series of unhinged ramblings before just disappearing into the night like some sort of manic street preacher. It's probably unfair to the rest of the band to say that Jeff Mangum is a Neutral Milk Hotel, but except for one single album, he was a Neutral Milk Hotel. This is not to ignore the contributions of the rest of the band, who played a huge part in creating a classic. It's just that it wasn't even a band until 1996. One cannot remove Neutral Milk Hotel from the context of the larger Elephant Six Collective, who were a posse of like-minded musicians from the American South with a deep love for Beach Boys-inspired psychedelia and the lo-fi recording aesthetic popularized by Guided by Voices. They quickly gained a cult following 
with fans snatching up any release bearing their trademark sticker. Most notable were the Apples in Stereo, the Olivia Tremor Control of Montreal, Elf Power, and Bula. In the late 90s, when they were starting to gain steam in the indie world, these bands seemed like fluid entities. Just a group of musicians sitting in the hot Athens, Georgia sun, or the mountain air of Denver, just smoking weed and playing psychedelic rock. And according to Mangum, this wasn't far from the truth. The different members were all writing their own songs. When it came time to record, they grabbed whoever was around. No matter how you look at it though, Neutral Milk Hotel revolves around Mangum, his voice, his personality, and his hallucinogenic visions that form the basis for the band's surreal lyrics. The four primary founders of Elephant Six all grew up in the small town of Ruston in northern Louisiana. Mangum, along with Robert Schneider, Will Cullum Hart, and Bill Doss, played together in various bands, and all but Schneider formed Olivia Tremor Control. Mangum himself started using the moniker Milk early, before adopting the longer title after he learned of another artist with the same name. He eventually left the others to travel around the country, recording random tapes with whoever was available. The recordings were mostly for friends, and were traded around with no real concern for maximizing sales. 1993's Hype City soundtrack is often cited as the first official Neutral Milk Hotel album, and that it was actually distributed by a company called Parasol Mail Order for a short time. This album features early versions of songs that would show up in later works, notably Up and Over We Go, which became King of Carrot Flowers Part 3, Engine, and Gardenhead, Leave Me Alone. The cassette is near impossible to find, and the album has never been re-released, but it is available on YouTube. It's markedly different to what he'd eventually do later on. It's very much in the psychedelic and indie rock vein more than the folky sound he'd adopt. It's chaotic, experimental, and sounds like it was recorded in a car. Neutral Milk Hotel's first mass-released recording, Everything Is, from 1994, originally featured two songs, but has grown over the years to a full seven-song EP in its latest 2011 release. It serves as a bridge between his tape experiments and the more developed sound of On Avery Island. The single was passed around enough that he gained the attention of the relatively new Merge Records. Magnum was ready to record his first album, but he knew he'd need some help from an old friend. In early 1995, Just Mangum traveled to Denver, Colorado to link up with his Rustin buddy, Robert Schneider, who had already formed the Apples in Stereo, the Elephant Six recording label, and had set up a recording studio in a friend's apartment. Jeff moved into a closet within a haunted house, or rather, as he claimed, a haunted closet within a normal house. The band at this point was still nothing more than Jeff and Robert. They locked themselves in a room and recorded random bits of songs until they hit a creative wall. Then they'd go outside, smoke cigarettes, and chat until one of them had a flash of inspiration. Then they'd sprint inside, record, rinse, repeat. Despite what many believe, Neutral Milk Hotel's On Avery Island wasn't ignored upon its 1996 release. Although there is little press prior to their second album, they had generated enough of a following that major publications did cover the release of its follow-up. By 1998, Elephant Six was already a cult phenomenon, with fans racing to pick up anything with their icon on the packaging. 
It's strange that this album isn't more loved in retrospect. On Avery Island gets the same unfair treatment as Slint's first album. It's not a huge step below its mammoth follow-up, nor is it significantly different stylistically. Much like everything is, it's mostly driven by lo-fi indie rock in a guided-by-voices vein, but he started to mix in more acoustic folky material drenched in pathos. We also see more expansive instrumentation, with xylophones, horns, and organs that supplement the typical guitar band setup. Songs like Naomi and Where You'll Find Me Now look forward to the formula that would conquer the world. He's not given up on tape experiments either. The album closes out with 14 minutes of droney noise. Now that Jeff had an album in the bag, it was only inevitable that he'd have to tour. And barring some ridiculous Dick Van Dyke one-man band setup, he'd need other musicians to help bring the material of On Avery Island to a live setting. He enlisted two more Rustin Ray's musicians, Julian Coster and Scott Spillane. The latter he'd met at a pizza shop in Austin. Jeff helped him make a bunch of pizzas during an unexpected late night rush and used this opportunity to convince him to join. The final piece was drummer Jeremy Barnes, who dropped out of college on a whim to join them. They started rehearsals in New York at Coster's grandmother's house. Julian Coster was a multi-instrumentalist and felt that everyone in the band could benefit by expanding their musical skill set. Spillane took up horn playing and Barnes taught himself accordion, which is as of now, still his primary instrument. The tour was a success, earning the band enough money to permanently relocate to Athens, where many of the Elephant Six were stationed. They were road-tested and ready to record. There was just one missing piece to the puzzle, one element that would generate one of the top albums of the 90s. But it wasn't a person, but a book. If I knew the history of the world, would everything make more sense to me, or would I just lose my mind? Jeff Mangum One day, Jeff Mangum walked into a bookstore and was pulled to the back. On the shelf was a copy of a book he'd known about, but had never actually given much thought to. He bought that copy of A Diary of a Young Girl and spent the next two days reading it. Afterwards, according to his words, he completely flipped out. The story of the young Anne Frank and her tragic death in a concentration camp during the Second World War consumed his mind. He began to have dreams about finding a time machine and saving her from her dark fate. This obsession stayed with him as the band began recording their first album in the summer of 1997 at Pet Sound Studio in Denver. Once again, Robert Schneider was brought in as producer. They lacked the money to afford the fuzz boxes and distortion pedals needed to give the music that sound that Jeff wanted. But using some complicated studio trickery, Robert was able to give the album its heavily distorted but quote, warm quality. The songs themselves are relatively simple, but Jeff's acoustic strumming is supplemented with a variety of quirky instruments, including accordions, cheap horns, banjos, bagpipes, singing saws, and whatever else the band could get their hands on. The catchy three-chord folk is broken up by funeral dirges, random punk explosions, tape experiments, and Balkan folk breaks. It's a wild, varied listen, and this approach would influence countless followers. Experimentation aside, it's Jeff Mangum's words and the way he sings them that's the true star here. The lyrics are strange and cryptic, feeling like snippets of dreams 
with vivid images set in a strange world. I'm personally not a lyrics guy, but something pulls me into these. It's filled with these disconnected concrete images featuring strange moments from low-class southern life, coming of age, young love, mixed with his unhealthy obsession with Anne Frank. The running motif of mourning for the young teenage girl in the album Sweet Like Quality pushed some to suggest that it's a concept album, but this is something that Jeff denies. Overall, very little of it makes sense, but it's all so weird and surreal, it just feels meaningful. So many fans have dedicated countless hours to dissecting these songs. But as Jeff has said, 90% of this was just him screaming nonsense into a tape recorder. The rest was songwriting. Whatever approach he took to making this, it worked. Jeff pushes his nasally voice to the breaking point, jumping out a key at times. For many, his voice is the biggest obstacle to liking this. For others, like myself, it's what makes it work. It gives the impression of a man teetering on the cliched precipice of madness. There's something so effective about it, turning an essentially two-chord song like O Comely into this deep emotional experience, like a tape was recording his heavy heart. He kills it so hard in this track that if you listen closely, you can hear one of the band members yell, holy shit, towards the end of the song. Now it might be strange to claim from the vantage point of history that the album was only a modest success, before every band of the early 2000s started dropping their name, before Pitchfork called it the fourth best album of the 90s and Pace the second best, before Amazon hailed it as the second best indie album of all time, before Spin named it one of the 100 best albums from the 20 years between 1985 and 2005, this was just another album by a rock band on an indie label. It had a print run of 7,000 copies, which they easily sold, and they had enough of a following that they were reviewed by Rolling Stone, who awarded the album a respectable three stars. Jeff was finding himself doing radio spots, interviews, and larger publications. The band had taken off enough that they could even tour the UK and Europe. It seemed like their star was on the rise. Jeff would joyfully talk of his plans to convert a mobile home into a giant organ, and travel around the country with other Elephant Six musicians and just play this organic unintended music in public squares. And out of nowhere, he disappeared. Fans waited patiently for a new album, a new song, anything. But they were answered in just silence. R.E.M. offered the band a supporting spot on their 1999 tour, but they were politely turned down. Journalists asked for interviews, but were denied. Bands started to sound like them. Indie groups were dropping their name in interviews. Accordions and trumpets and saws were becoming cool. Balkan folk was a buzzword, but still, no word from the enigmatic songwriter, and the legend grew. Neutral Milk Hotel never officially broke up. They never released a statement. The other members just started working on other projects, but Jeff was MIA. All the fans had was this album, which ended with the sound of a man setting down his guitar and just walking away. For years, Jeff's fans were left wondering, what happened? Was his psyche broken in half from recording an album wrapped in so much pain? Did he sing so hard that he shredded his vocal cords? Was he actually schizophrenic as his lyrics and interviews seemed to suggest? Of course, none of this was the case. 
He had never actually disappeared. He'd occasionally show up on Elephant Six albums, would perform with other groups now and then, to help fight against the high prices of bootlegs. In 2001, Jeff put out a concert recorded in 1997, Live at Joe's. Then a short time later, he put out a collection of field recordings of Balkan folk music. Yet people seem more invested in the legend of Jeff Mangum than the reality. He was just some dude who, when faced with the prospect of being famous, decided that he'd rather be left alone. In 2001, a friend of his posted this highly edited message on a board. I think it's time that I made a few things clear. First of all, I am not in hiding, as some have said. Where am I supposed to be hiding? Behind a couch? In the cat box? Under the bed? I wake up every day. I walk out into the world and say hello to all the people I meet. The sun shines, the birds sing, the dogs birth out the old woman's eyeballs. The afterbirth overwhelms me, swimming with strange creatures, etc. Living in the great mystery is enough for me right now. He later says, When I hear people bitching about being famous, I always wonder why they keep doing it. If you don't like doing interviews anymore, then don't. It's that easy. He later went on to explain that he had contracted mono and hepatitis at the same time, and was thus suffering from chronic fatigue. In addition to this, he had also suffered a nervous breakdown that lasted two years. Naturally, fans questioned the authenticity of the message. The information was more or less confirmed, though, when he finally offered Pitchfork an interview in 2002. Still, walking away from fame did little to halt his growing popularity. In true cult fashion, word of mouth and a growing internet culture spread this album ever far. Spoofs of the cover became a meme. The album was name-checked on Parks and Recreation. Franz Ferdinand, Caribou, Arcade Fire, and even fucking Keisha named it as an influence. When the album got a re-release in 2005, Pitchfork upgraded the review to 10 out of 10, and Rolling Stone revalued it at 4.5 stars out of 5. In a few short years, a simply well-respected indie rock album found itself rubbing shoulders with Nevermind and OK Computer. What would have happened had Jeff Mangum not made himself a legend? We'll never know. Our story is not fully over, though. First off, the forgotten other members of the band went off to make great music after this. Scott Spillane made two fun psychedelic albums with the Gerbils. Julian Coster went on to do a handful of projects, most notably the genre-bending, avant-garde-ish group, The Music Tapes. Maybe the most successful of them was Jeremy Barnes. He continued with the accordion and even offered help to Beirut's successful debut, Gulag Orchestra, which is a must-listen for Neutral Milk Hotel fans. The primary songwriter Zach Conan is doing his own thing, he carries the torch lit by Jeff Well. The other main project of Jeremy Barnes is A Hawk and a Handsaw, a wild mix of Eastern European and Middle Eastern folk music with a punk attitude. Their albums are a lot of fun and well worth hearing. In 2010, fans were dropped a huge bomb when Jeff started touring again out of nowhere. Then a year later, the band put out a gorgeous vinyl-only box set sales of which were boosted by the inclusion of the first new music by the band in over 12 years, in the form of an EP called Ferris Wheel on Fire. Sadly, it was not a collection of raucous new recordings by an older, wiser Neutral Milk Hotel, but a collection of solo acoustic tracks from before in the aeroplane over the sea. Fans of the group will find a lot to love here, 
even if it does feel like a bit of a letdown after such a long wait. And some of these tracks were already circulating on the internet anyway. However, the real treat for fans was in 2013 when the full band began touring the world. A whole generation who'd missed their only chance in 1998 were finally able to get the concert experience they'd been craving. The band played regularly for two years before announcing in 2015 that they were saying goodbye for the quote, never ending now. So even though the world was never given that follow-up album, their brief reformation offered the Neutral Milk Hotel story at least a tiny bit of closure. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms, and we are talking about Neutral Milk Hotel. You have been listening to Aaron Troy White talk you through the band's career and discography, and if you've been listening on the Spotify playlist, you've been listening to a selection of the tracks as well. Still with Nick and myself are Lyle Wagonek. Lyle, hello. Hello. And Aaron Troy White. Hey, Aaron. Howdy ho. So, Aaron, let's 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 get cracking. Um, how did how did the band get started? I mean, you've talked a little bit in your introductions, and obviously there was what the the Elephant Six Collective. Is that where the story starts, or are we starting somewhere before that? I don't think you can start before that because I mean they were all childhood friends growing up in uh, Louisiana. Um, okay, so they they grew up in Louisiana, but Elephant Six wasn't in Louisiana, right? I mean, it started out in Louisiana. There were a bunch of high school friends, and uh, they played in bands together, recorded tapes together, and they called themselves Elephant Six. And then um, after that, the everybody went off to university or college, as we say in America, and they just kind of brought in other people with them. And next thing you know, it just became more and more bands, and they kind of started little nodes that were primarily in Denver, Colorado and Athens, Georgia. And they're also, there's like a San Francisco wing and things like that. But I guess they, they all shared this kind of DIY approach and, and they love the Beach Boys. Like it's one thing if you listen through them, they, they like, they, they took Smiley Smiley and they melted it down in a spoon and injected it into their arms. That's how much they love the psychedelic and, era of Beach Boys. And we're talking we're talking about a bunch of different people who became musicians and they all went off to do different things. I mean, we've got we've got Rob Schneider, not that one, the other Rob Schneider, um, who went off to do Apples in stereo as well as produce basically everything we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, what other bands were there that came out of this? I mean, there was uh, the Olivia Tremor Control. Um, that was started by the other childhood friends of William Doss and you know the other people whose names I don't have memorized. <laughs> so because I'm more prepared for Neutral Milk Hotel than I am for the uh, we also Olivia Tremor Control episode. It's a shame because they're better. Of, only. Elf Power mm. of Montreal. Um, of Montreal. Belua, Will Cullen Belua. Hart. That was one of the other ones. I said Will Cullen Hart. That was the other uh, Olivia Tremor Control guy. Um, nice yeah. bit of Wikipedia. Right. <laughs> it was my notes. It was actually my notes. It wasn't with you. It was my notes. Okay. So when was this? When when did Jeff Mangum start to actually start recording stuff? Uh, this would be in the the, the late eighties. Um, okay. Lots of bedroom stuff in the late eighties. Um, and when did he start? So obviously you mentioned there's a couple of early tapes. Um, but we're not really going to get into that. Only like with someone like Daniel Johnston, would we actually go through the tapes uh, and, and listen and talk about everything. But the first thing that got sort of distributed on cassette semi-officially was Hype City 
soundtrack. And right. this would be what, early 90s here? Early 90s, 1993 is when it's usually uh, So we're talking post-grunge. And now instead of there being this sort of grunge rock, we've got this sort of fuzzy, messy, acoustic-y, electrical thing that's going on. Um, when we're putting this together, obviously there's two major albums, but I, I personally wanted to go through the other stuff because you've got some songs and bits of songs that may start here on Hype City and then six, seven years later turn up as part of major tracks on an airplane over the sea. Um, the, the opener of Hype City soundtrack is up and what, up and up and over, up and over away, up and over away, which is a refrain and a part that he finds. It's like he got a bit of a song and he didn't know what to do with it. And then seven years later, it appears on a proper album, appears on a proper album, and, and we get some stuff. Um, Aaron, how is this album album in parentheses for you? We'll start with you. I I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, I came in here already a fan, but I hadn't heard this before uh, we prepared for this episode. Um, I mean, it's interesting to hear some of the proto versions of the songs that show up in later albums. Um, like, for example, the this version of Garden Head, Leave Me Alone was... Uh, I, I prefer the later one, but I mean, um, it's already there. He's already got the melody there. Um, I just needed some embellishment to really make it work. Um, some other stuff that didn't survive in the later recordings are Wood Guitar, which really stood out for me. Um, and Engine. I think Engine is another track that was the B-side to Holland 45. Um, and yeah, that Engine, shows up in Engine's a pro version the, here. Engine comes back several times throughout the career, uh, but it is nice to hear it in this early stage. Um, one thing, uh, just just a note. One thing that I made a note of for for engine that I really liked is uh, one of the lines in there is through endless revisions to state what I mean. And it's interesting that he put in that song, a song that he's revised so many times over the years. And he's also been quoted as saying, "This is his kids' song, right? Like this is engine is basically as close to a song for kids that he'd ever going to write. Um, maybe it's in one of his later interviews where he wasn't making as much sense as possible." Um, Lyle, we're gonna we're gonna move. Over to you at the moment. I mean, during th this period, uh, what were you listening to early 90s? Oh, what was I listening to in the early 90s? Yeah. Personally, oh, it would have been like suede, you know, pulp, blur, Britpop. Uh, not, actually, yeah, not you, got, this. you got the Britpop stuff. So you were looking, you were looking towards Eng England and not really paying attention to what was going on in, in, in America. Um, I mean, if I was this... listening to grunge, I was listening to Nirvana. Okay. I was a Nirvana guy, okay. not a Pearl Jam guy. And would I be right in thinking, Ewan, that this stuff probably wasn't that well known in the UK until much, much later? Oh God, no one, no one. I mean, it's very unlikely many people were listening to this in the UK in '93. Oh, in '93, everybody, everybody was listening to Blur and Pulp and <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. Um, Lyle, while when you while you when you listened to this. Uh, as part of the preparation, I mean, obviously, I mean, as Ira said, people would be familiar with the main albums. Was this new to you? Yeah, this was new to me. Um, I actually liked it. I, I, for me, the albums got worse as they went on, and this might have been my favorite. Um, I liked Garage Head, although, or Garden Head, sorry. Although I was kind of waiting for like some drums to kick in, um, but but I liked it. What um, one thing I picked up on this, uh, actually, on all the albums. Is a slight Ramones influence. Um, I feel one song on every album has a oh oh oh, oh in it, and uh, if you listen to Synthetic Flying Machine, there is an oh oh oh, oh in it. <laughs> the oh, oh that should be the name of a Ramones compilation, right there. Oh oh oh, oh. <laughs> it really is. Every song has an oh oh oh. oh. Um, yeah. 
Okay, well, we are definitely going to revisit that comment you just made about how all the albums got progressively worse. I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe later. Um, for me, I, I was most surprised by how electric it was, how there are actually electric guitars, which is something that totally disappears from Jeff Mangum's music later on. Um, so before we started this, um, let's say Nick was ambivalent about Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, but occasionally, Nick lets me do stuff because he makes me listen to things like The Fall and Can. And I go, fine, or oh, we'll do an episode of Neutral Milk. And he's like, fine, I'll listen to it. Um, Nick. Yeah. It's pretty much how I discuss it. Fine, fine, I'll do your band then. <laughs> fine. Uh, if, fine. You got, if you had to listen to 33 Fall albums, I'll listen to two Neutral Milk Hotel yeah. albums. Yeah, I have a feeling I won this brain. one, don't you? <laughs> I, 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 I don't think... Uh, by the way, I mean, I definitely don't come out of this world because by the end of this season, you'll realize why, because there's definitely a lot more of something I'm going to have to listen to, which I haven't got uh, to yet, which is also another one of Nick's. Uh, Nick, yes. Hype City Hello. soundtrack. No recollection of it whatsoever. Can we move on to the next one? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I listened Can to I add it? one more thing? Go on. I, I was going to add one more thing about this. Um, I was surprised that it didn't sound like Jeff Mangum in, in the mm. later albums. Like he had a different tone in his voice. And then specifically in Bomb Drop, it was a lot of screaming. I'm like, okay, yeah. this is just like a totally different thing than Airplane Over the Sea. But yeah, oh, no, um, absolutely. I mean, it's almost like um, a mold, when you listen to Moldy Peaches and then you listen to, was it, is it Adam Green from Moldy Peaches who went off and sort of just a normal sort of acoustic, like indie pop songs and then you go back to moldy peaches and he's screaming about penises and watching porn with demo and you're like okay different guy different band um okay well nick's nick's listened to it and has no recollection of of it so hopefully hopefully that's not going to be the cut out and keep and repeat response to all the albums but we'll we'll see as we move <laughs> um so aaron i mean as far as you know i mean where was Jeff at this time because he was recording this he recorded everything with Rob Schneider right not everything not the early stuff okay um the early stuff I think he was just going around just recording stuff um I believe uh he was in Seattle when he recorded Hype City soundtrack and everything is he was he was a bit nomadic at the time but it seemed like he'd settled into Seattle at this point Oh, okay, yeah, because there was a live album later on, um, Live at Jitty Joe's, and he tells a bit of a story about how he ended up traveling, he was traveling around, and he ended up sleeping on couches, and then a girl left him, and then he wrote a song, and then he did the same thing again. So, okay, so that sort of fits. Um, well, I mean, Hype City Soundtrack, go and find it on YouTube. It's definitely not on Spotify. And it is interesting, particularly if you like to see how a band evolves, but it's not what you would call canon, I guess. And am I right in thinking that that um, Jeff Mangum didn't doesn't really want that stuff to be out there? But he did release it. They released, released it, it on tape. Okay, yeah, okay. They, it was released on yeah, tape. Yeah, the time, but but, but yeah. like like after the sort of later stuff. They have. They, so to... He's come out and said that that there's some of his tapes he doesn't want people to put online. Um, a lot of the stuff before this, to okay. my knowledge, according to the band, to the band run wiki, this one has not been said that he doesn't want it released online, mm -hmm. but he has not officially re-released it himself. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and this was, this was the first thing released uh, by, on the Elephant Six label and was distributed by Mail Order. The stuff before, like Invent Yourself a Shortcake and Beauty, I think, um, were probably 
ones they were definitely referring to. But if you release something once officially, um, I'm allowed to listen to it and talk about it, basically. Uh, <laughs> it's not like when Prince took everything off Spotify and we weren't allowed to listen to Prince again anymore. <laughs> okay, so we're going to move on. Um, before the first album, there was an EP. Let's touch on it a little bit. Um, everything is is probably the beginning of Neutral Milk Hotel, even though Neutral Milk Hotel is still at the moment just Jeff, just just Jeff Mangum. Um, Aaron, you said this was released as a small thing and then got bigger. Um, no, I don't think. Well, it yeah, I guess it started as a as a two song single. Um, it was it was everything is with. The I'm so confused because I've been listening to all the the different versions of this oh, of yeah, this particular single. Um, but it was uh, the original was Everything Is and Snow Song Part One. I think were the two tracks on the first version. Okay, um, and then by the time it was by the time it had been fully extended, we had what seven, eight tracks. Yeah, like about seven tracks, including one who, which name I can never remember. It's something like Auntie's Smegma Blowtorch or something. <laughs> Egma's Blowtorch. That's it. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost, yeah, crap. How am I not going to say Smegma? Come on. Um, <laughs> so, what's different? Uh, and I'll, I'll start with you and then go over to over to Lyle again. What's different musically between the early tapes and here? How, is he evolved into something that is considered to be a band musically, or is it still just a bunch of half-finished songs trying to find a home? Um, I I would say it's more of the half-finished songs in Search of a Home. Um, my, my first note on this that I wrote is, this isn't really the same artist as later, just like what you guys have said. Um, he's singing in a comfortable place in his voice. I think he's he's sticking to a range where he knows he can can make it work um there's none of that nasally belting so i I think this is very much uh, a continuation of what we heard on hype city soundtrack and there's also not that melancholy that would come up later um yeah it's more young more fancy free um very psychedelic just simple catchy pop songs um yeah i think there's there's a lot of really good stuff that the track itself everything is i think is that's a that's become a fan favorite over years from what i can gather yeah um lyle again i mean i'm not even going to ask every time did you know this beforehand um but coming from well you've already told us everything gets progressively worse how much worse is this one (laughs) i know this is about the same um i I feel like the first um you know hype city everything is and ferris wheel on fire it's all like really good demos um so when i listen to it it's like oh i you know i liked everything is like the title track i like snow song um but i guess that's the lo-fi thing is it's supposed to sound like that but when I'd hear a good song, I'd be like, oh, I want to, I would love to hear a fully produced version of that. Um, I do also have everything is more Ramones OOO. So <laughs> that, that is continuing. <laughs> um, Nick, you like the Ramones. You must love this. I have no That's recollection a terrible of it. Oh, come on. <laughs> I don't know what no, this one. No, okay, okay. I was duped into listening to this because on the Spotify version, it's tacked onto the end of Avery Island. <sighs> Um, so you, so were li- you were you listened by stealth. I listened by stealth. Yeah, Spotify made me listen to this, but yeah, it's uh, there, isn't it? Um, I think I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get um, I'm, after the podcast has ended. I'm going to ask Nick's opinion of bands that he has opinions of, and then I'm just going to edit it into this bit and pretend that he's talking about Neutral Milk Hotel. Yeah, that um, <laughs> you, but you can probably just um, sort of like just, you know paste it together from previous episodes. Make me sound really enthusiastic about it. 
Yeah. Well, at the moment we've got ambivalence. I'm hoping we go one way or the I other. I listen. I listen to the albums. I'll, I, I'll be. I'll, I'll be brutally honest. I listened to the other stuff, but it was like once through, nothing stuck. The albums I paid attention to. I only really had two albums to do, so I tried to do them properly. Um, and I'm conflicted, but we'll, but we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get to the good stuff. Apparently, there's going to be some good stuff. Okay. Well, I mean, this is why we're here. Is mainly to talk about the the studio albums. So we're going to go and spend some time with the studio albums. I mean. Avery Island, uh, on Avery Island, uh, which from, again, I did probably the same cursory research in terms of fan wikis. Uh, Avery Island was a public garden on the Louisiana Gulf Coast. And Jeff said once he had a spiritual experience there. Um, There's lots of stuff Jeff has said in interviews. And one quote, one quote that I'm going to read out basically to you was about how they recorded it in Denver, the album in Denver. Uh, with Robert Schneider, uh, not that one. Um, And he said, it was January in Denver, freezing cold and snowing all over. I moved into a friend's house and was living in a closet. And it was cold, not only because of the weather, but because it was a haunted house. The closet I was living in was haunted. And he talked for a while about how it's haunted by some party. And he lived in a closet and he listened to John Coltrane. And occasionally Robert would come and get him and they'd record something. And he went back to this closet. Now, I mean, whether or not this is, if it's true, Jeff Mangum's insane. Um, if it's not true, it's, it's part of a great story, I guess, about him. Um, Aaron, what's different? Has he settled down? Is he still on the bus? Is he still greyhounding from state to state? Or is, has he got roots at this point? No, I wouldn't say he has roots. I think he's, he's, still, uh, he's still moving around. Um, he, he temporarily relocated in Denver. Uh, everything is got him some attention. It got him a, a, a manager or not really a manager, but a but an agent. That's what they call those people. Got him an agent that hooked him up with a label and he, he got on Merge and they got him to do his first album on Avery Island. So he thought, well, Rob, he's he's a good friend. He knows how to produce recordy stuff. Um, by that point, Rob had started up uh, the Apples in Stereo. Um, he had set up a tiny little recording studio in a house and seemed like a, a great place to make his, his first proper album. Um, so yeah, he moved into the haunted closet and him and him and Rob just recorded stuff. It was just, it was, it was really just them kind of experimenting, recording stuff, doing, just messing around. Just sounds like they just stayed up all night, every night for like a few weeks in the haunted closet and recorded stuff. Like it really just sounds like they're just effing around for a while. I mean, yeah, I mean, even even on that, I mean, in terms of if you look at the credits for for instrumentation, uh, Jeff Mangum, guitar, drums, vocals, bells, xylophone, air organ, keyboards, tapes. Rob Rob Schneider, not that one. Air organs, home organs, fuzz bass, xylophone, horn arrangements, and then you got a bunch of other people who came and did some trombone and some more fuzz bass, some accordion and cowbell. There's always some cowbell somewhere. Um, this is okay. So this is where we've actually got some tracks. We've got a re- revisiting garden head, leave me alone, which I think is a, an amazing track. Uh, it starts off with song against sex, which is a really, really good track. Naomi's great. April 8th is also a good one. Um, I think this is a great album. I mean, I, there are times in pre sisters swallowing a donkey's eye at the end that if I'm busy, I might end the 13th end the song a bit earlier and go off and do something else. But for me, this is a, this is a really, really, really good album. Um, Lyle, have we started the decline yet? Uh, no. Well, it's hard because the first, <laughs> first group of stuff was like in a totally different league. They were, it was more demo-ish. 
he was singing like a different person. He was screaming at times. And then I would say this is where it really starts. This is where I start to like get strong opinions about things. And I was like time traveled back to when I lived in Athens from 99 to 01. Because I heard this. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've totally heard this before. So you should have asked, have you heard this before? I would have said yes. Because oh, so the type of... Um, you used to live in Athens round about the uh, round about the, during the late nineties uh, and early noughties, I think. Um, this must have been playing in every coffee house, right? You must have heard well, this before. Why, yes, it was. In fact, I used to visit Jittery Joe's, uh, and it was probably playing in there. And that's where Jeff Mangum recorded live at Jittery Joe's, um, although it's yeah, in it's a different place. location. Yeah, mm. it's, it's actually right uh, where he recorded that album is down the street from the 40 watt, which is like the famous, you know, Athens indie venue, okay. um, which I did play at once. So there's my claim to fame. But uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, is, I mean, so what was the scene like? Is there a, I mean, obviously you, what you got, basically you got REM and Neutral Milk Hotel. That's Athens, right? B-52s, so, widespread B-52, panic. Oh yeah. I mean, and there were drive-by truckers and, um, you know, driving and crying was a big, band at that time but those are all kind of different styles um i okay so this is where i get stronger longer opinions there was definitely a scene at that time that um was very do-it-yourself outsider art naive art um and i i think as like music scenes kind of begin as a reaction of other conventions but then they develop their own conventions which becomes their own set of rules and then they distance themselves maybe from other people. So I think probably by 99.00 when I was there, um, definitely a strong lo-fi, this kind of folk rocky thing. Um, I mean, I remember Olivia Tremor Control playing there and all that type of stuff. Um, but, it, but it was, uh, you know, I respect what they were doing in like, hey, we want trumpet on this track. Does anyone play trumpet? No, but give me a week and I'll be able to play something. <laughs> Uh, and then they record it and now you have a trumpet on your song. Um, you know, I, I respect that type of drive that they had at the same time. It was also pretty isolated. Like you wouldn't have anyone who was into that music. Like they wouldn't be allowed to be listening to destiny's child or, um, you you know, even, well, they could probably listen to Radiohead, but you know, you had to fit within those rules, but I, but I like the album. Um, I like the song against sex. Um, that's like the one other song that, has been an earworm in my head over the past couple of days. Um, you said about the trumpet. Um, the one thing I do like about both these albums, this one and the next one, is what I would call drunk brass instruments. All the brass instruments sound slightly drunk. Now, there's an am- it's, maybe it's because of an amateurish quality to it, but it's not like it's not like you're listening to I don't know Coltrane and there's some very good accomplished playing. It just sounds like something going, and I really like that. It just yeah. sounds it sounds like the trombone and the trumpets had a bit to drink and isn't quite there yet. Um, Nick, hello, um, Nick. Did you remember this album? Yes, yes. Not only do I remember it, I listened to it. I listened to it several times and. Um, it gets complicated for me because I find it very hard to talk about my feelings for On Avery Island without talking about my feelings for In the Aeroplane because I really, really like this album. <gasps> I think it's great. Um, it's, it, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I listened to it again just before the podcast. I said, you know, this is, this is, you're expecting me to come on and slag Neutral Milk Hotel and their stupid name. But this album <laughs> is actually, 
it's it shit hot. Um, and I, I li- and like you, I like the drunk drunk brass sounds. Um, this, uh, the, the arrangements are much more subtle than in, in the airplane over the sea, I think. Um, probably, maybe they just didn't have as many people in the room. I, I don't know, because you don't have that fucking cacophony that you've got going on on the next album. Um, and, and yes, stuff like uh, the first track, Song Against Sex, you mentioned a couple of times already, the, the guitar sound on that's amazing. Um, so I love yeah. the whole lo-fi thing. Um, and on paper, there's a lot about um, Neutral Milk Hotel. When I read about it, I think, I should love this band. I should, I, you know, they should be right up my street. But there's sort of a pressure to like the next one. And I think that really really rubs me up the wrong way somehow um because i get like, this I like, one fine I like you, you know? look surprised by that but one thing i've learned from you after over doing these podcasts is if somebody hands you something and goes this is an amazing album you go is it now i'll fucking see about that well yeah but i will i mean this is, it's, it's difficult not to do that because because and i think i've said this before you you, you go in if someone says to you this is a classic then you sit down and you're like right impress me <laughs> you know and I, you can't help it because someone's told you it's amazing i don't want to go into an album like that i'd rather go in totally cold and be pleasantly surprised and maybe i would love it maybe i'd come out fighting for it i don't know but i don't think i will because i fucking hate it but we'll come back to that because that's the other one <laughs> this one's good this one's good <laughs> um so i mean you said maybe that you, you, you used the word cacophony for the next one which we're not yet. quite onto yet but is there also a thing and i'm going to go over to, to aaron for this i think um, this was all Jeff, right? He hadn't didn't really have a band at this point. Neutral no, it was Milk Jeff and Tell. Rob and some random people in Denver. Yeah, as yeah. opposed to later on when he's got Jeremy Barnes and an actual band who he's working right, with. Right, because I never feel like I'm listening to a band. I always feel like this is just Jeff Mangum. Uh, there's no sense to me of Neutral Milk Hotel as a band. Maybe they do become a band, but in my mind, they're just this guy and some people he's brought into a room to hit things. <laughs> <laughs> now, they, they, they become a band. I mean, they're still him. But they yeah. become a band driven by him. Yeah, Whereas at yeah. the moment, it's him. It's him and Rob and a couple of people being being dragged in. And maybe, maybe uh, that limitation of just, or freedom of just being himself, and he hasn't quite gone off the rails yet, uh, maybe that led to a different type of album. Um, we'll talk about Aeroplane later. Um, but Aaron, I mean, I mean, is this, I mean, I'm, get, I'm getting the opinion that basically this is Nick and Lyle, maybe Nick and Lyle's high point of the Neutral Milk Hotel canon. Um, Aaron, help, be, be on my side here. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm going to avoid talking too much about the next album, um, but the next album is, is one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, I'm going to be honest about that. Um, I think like a lot of people, I look down upon this album unfairly fairly because i think that it is nearly as good to be honest um i think he has a lot of the elements that make the in the airplane over the sea so great i think those elements are already here it 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 plays like a suite it has that it it feels like like it's a well thought through album so it does flow um there are little pieces like little uh, melodies that pop up later and some songs will get reprises and has the same type of stuff. But I just, I kind of look at these two out. Like, I feel like on Avery Island is like the Emilio Estevez of neutral milk hotel. <laughs> like, Wait, I like Emilio Estevez. Yeah, he's, like, fi- exactly. he's my favorite. Exactly. Emilio Estevez is great. And, and he might actually be better than Charlie Sheen. <gasps> but the thing is, they look a lot alike. They do a lot of the similar roles. Um, so are we talking just, more about the Just one is completely <laughs> bipolar and insane, and the other one is just wacky and fun. 
Um, Emilio Estevez is less polarizing, I guess, than Charlie Sheen. But I think Charlie Sheen has a lot more people are going to be like, yeah, Charlie Sheen. We love two and a half men. Tiger blood. No one has ever said I love two and a half men, but but you, you get my point here. Sort of. Sort of. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a bad one. I, I just... um, if you're listening, by the way, and you do love two and a half men, uh, I would say let us know. But I mean, at the moment, any reviews we get are so fucking weird anyway. I mean, as a brief aside, our most recent review, which I will thank you very much for, starts with, oh my God, I fucking love this podcast. Um, I haven't actually listened to it yet. <laughs> so um yeah i mean feel free to leave a review just saying i love two and a half men um that'd be great thanks just put five stars next to it um, okay so avery island came out um it wasn't massively uh successful um it was critically respected is that fair enough to say i'm words not nodding heads and shaking heads doesn't it got, work it, 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 <laughs> it got released it, it got picked up and released in the uk um it was it got it built him enough of a following that he needed the tour for the album um it got good reviews and it was enough that this album did well enough that rolling stone reviewed the next one when it came out so i mean rolling stone's not just gonna like take some like oh some some guy's bedroom recordings and be like oh i wonder what his next album's gonna be like so okay it's 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 hard looking at this stuff in hindsight because it's become such a thing you know now 20 some years later that it's hard to look back at the sources and not be like well avery island like it's hard to look at avery island as it is without the follow-up album yeah but i feel like the evidence shows that this was not ignored on its release because I don't think in the airplane over the sky would have or in the airplane over the sea, excuse me, would have been reviewed by Rolling Stone and Pitchfork and all these things if on Avery Island didn't get a following. OK, well, that's probably a good time to, to sort of move on a little bit um, before we get to the next main album. Um, the next thing you can actually listen to, I guess, is uh, live at Jittery Joe's. There were so many bootlegs knocking about the place and bootlegs of live shows that the band went fine. We'll release something. And it's a. Uh, it's just just Jeff and a baby crying for about half an hour while he he sings songs that are not quite finished. Honestly, there is a baby, uh, and the sound of people drinking glasses and people go, "We love you." Um, but you can hear songs that aren't quite ready yet for the next album. Um, you, there's some good stuff in there, but it is a sort of weird bridge. So we're going to move straight on to the classic. Um, although when it came out in the airplane over the sea, enemy gave six out of 10 pitchfork uh gave it something like an eight or a, a seven uh and ranked it sort of it's yeah, respectable later on everybody revised they, they went back oh no actually it's amazing but we'll talk about that retrospective uh look airplane over the sea what year was this aaron uh it's 98 98 um what else what, what else was coming out in 98 in the u.s god not 98 was a terrible time for music wasn't it well 98 was an amazing year for uk music because you had um things like uh, radiohead and blur were, were, were at their creative peak uh spiritualized were at their creative peak you've got probably the best albums by those three bands doing the rounds round about 98 one maybe came out in 97 primal screen were doing loads of good stuff i mean for me america was asleep apart from maybe Sleater Kinney in the late 90s. Matchbox um, 20, you know. Yeah, I was, I was looking at... Google yeah, dolls. exactly. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, I was looking at this, and I was like, well, what was I listening to? And it was, you know, Mezzanine, by Massive <laughs> Attack, and This Is Hardcore. Um, yeah. 
you know, Exterminator by Primal Screen. So mm-hmm. yeah, which is Primal Screen's best album. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I because while you were in Athens, because uh, I was over I was over on the west coast of the US at the time, listening to the local uh, alternative rock station, and all I remember was it is it Everlast? Oh. Father of mine, that was on a lot. And um, Three Eye Blind or something. Yeah, there was lots of... And, um, uh, Everclear. 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 And Len, oh. Steal My Sunshine, was on pretty much five times a day. Um, yeah. That's ha- what I remember American radio being at the, at the end of the 90s. Um, okay, let's just get to it. Um, this album has been uh, held up as one of the greatest albums of all time by some. It is actually one of my top three albums, I think. Um, although I came to it like... I came to it late with the sort of pitchfork thing 10 years later and then realized that it is brilliant. It's also the only time I will ever listen to bagpipes and go, huh, good bagpipes. Um, we're going to go in a different order. We're going to start with Nick because Nick's got a face. <laughs> well, the bagpipes. Nick. but then, So about 15 years ago, I was in a record shop with my cousin. He's a guy called Alan Sims. He's in the Facebook group. Uh, that's uh, facebook.com slash group slash temp fans if you want to join. And um, at that time, I think we didn't we didn't know each other that well, but we both you know knew we liked our music. And I think we were doing that thing when you're fans where you're stalking around each other's taste a little bit, trying to work out you know where the crossover and thing is and stuff. And we saw a copy of um, In an Airplane Over the Sea in the record shop. And he said to me, these are his exact words, he said, buy that record. If you don't like it, you can tell me to fuck off. So I bought it. And you know what I was saying earlier about when, when someone tells you a record's great and you sit down like, okay, impress me. I mean, I'd really been primed for this one. And <laughs> well, listener, not long after my cousin got an email that simply said, fuck off, because I just didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. I didn't listen to it again. And I think a few times after here and there, I'd try it again. Cause you know, when, when an album's got that kind of reputation, I do genuinely want to like it. I want to know what people see in it. I want to have a bit of what you're having. So I'd listen to it, listen to it, never really got there. Uh, then we did it in the Facebook group a few years ago, still didn't like it. And I'm still like, I don't know, at this time, okay, sometimes I listen to it and it's just mildly annoying. It's all right. I don't know. Um, I was listening to it this Friday and I think I was a little bit stressed. And I just, it made me angry. I started shouting at it. And, and specifically <laughs> when those fucking bagpipes started up, I was just like, shut the fuck up. And the, and the, and the Jeff Mangum, whiny twat. I can't. It's just. He's like. He's like the guy who ruins parties with his guitar. Uh, it's like really, But he is. He's that guy. It's like so fucking earnest. But then, and earlier on, when you were saying like the like the Hype City soundtrack, like needed embellishment. Like this stuff's embellished relentlessly to the point of being unlistenable. It's just on that front. Um, the thirty-three and a third book um, by Kim Cooper does say yeah. that this this album when it came out was the most distorted album mm-hmm. up till this point. Um, when Rob Schneider, not that one, uh, was recording everything, it was basically microphones next to amps, next to microphones, just to make it sound fuzzy and big and loud, um, which I think makes it sound different and brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, um, it gives you feelings that I had for Tago Mago. Yeah. Um, well, this is the is thing, right? Is, is what I was talking about on paper. There are things about it I should like. And, and I should, you know, when, I, when I'm ranting about cacophony and stuff, I say this as a fan of Trout Mask Replica. So I'm well aware that there are albums on pedestals, that, uh, pedestal, pedestals, Peter, Peter. Anyway, there are albums that are put up there, right? And, and there are, to many people, just a cacophony. And, and so if I, I inwardly wince when I'm berating it for this because I know that there are albums I love which 
are open to that accusation very easily. So I'm still trying to, you know, I'm, I'm circling around trying to work out what it is. And I think it's Jeff Mangum. I just find him a bit whiny and annoying. You said, you said over earnest. I mean, surely an album that basically three thirds, three, three thirds, three quarters of is about Anne Frank. Yeah. And the rest of it is a, a jumble of of, fant- of of fantasy nonsense. How is that earnest? I mean, it's it's almost an Anne Frank Holocaust concept album, um, written by a man who got obsessed and was wandering around going slightly crazy. Um, Lyle, um, do you like this glorious cacophony? Um, do you like Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl? I mean, I don't know why I'm asking that question. <laughs> I mean, in the Venn I mean- diagram of liking cacophony and 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 the Anne Frank book, this would be the perfect mix, right? <laughs> Can we um, not confuse those two things just just before Lyle <laughs> starts? Because I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want my feelings towards this album to be blurred with the whole canon of uh, Holocaust testimonial literature. Because I really, maybe that's one it's of the things that annoys it's me too about late. it. What what do you hate about Night? It it, it won a Nobel <laughs> Prize, Nick. <laughs> um, Lyle, Lyle, back to you. I mean, you you sort of precursed precursed you sort of gave us a precursor by saying which direction the albums were going but has it fallen off a cliff like with nick or is this just an overrated album or i mean how do you feel what do you like i feel like i need to like like dissect the album and give like a thumbs up thumbs down on like every little part of it um because like his voice thumbs down uh overall album thumbs down the lyrics I, I like reading the lyrics. Um, I think they're kind of weird and strange and interesting. Um, the title track is an earworm. Uh, it's been in my head for a couple of days, so I can I can kind of give it a lot of positives. But um, I was talking about outsider art, and this really this album reminded me of uh, this artist Henry Darger, who uh, died at 81 in 1970. He was a janitor in Chicago who lived in a room, um, had a really strange life, look him up. Um, And when he died, they discovered a 15,000 page epic that he had written um, about the Vivian girls, which were seven girls who all looked the same and they fought um, evil forces. And, um, they also found thousands of watercolor and mixed media that he had produced over the years. Um, so when you look at something like, and, and, you know, outsider art, it's, it's naive. It exhibits extreme mental states, uh, unconventional ideas. Um, and so I, I can appreciate something when it's coming from this kind of place of naivety. Um, and it's got a lot of heart and emotion into it, but, for me, a lot music is context. Where and when do I want to listen to an album like this? And I just find myself going like rarely, if ever. There's there's no moment where I'm like, oh, I really want to listen to this album right now. Um, doesn't mean it's not great for other people. Doesn't mean it, it doesn't emotionally affect other people. Um, but I'm just like, eh, you know, whatever. It reminds me of being back in Athens in '98 with a certain group of people. Um, and you know, they're fine people, but, uh, it's just not my thing. Wow. I mean, like for me, I mean, I listen to, I mean, I listen to this probably once a month, maybe, uh, yesterday I listened to it on the bus and traveling, uh, yes, I listened to it on the bus. Um, and I love it from start to finish. Although the first time I listened to it, I think the, the, the second you, you hear, I love you, Jesus Christ quite early on in the album, it does make you go, oh, no, 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 what now? Um, <laughs> and, but then it starts with I Love You, Jesus Christ. And it's also an album that has most uses of the word semen 
um, of any album I've ever known, at least in two songs. Um, there's definitely references to incest and, and masturbation and various weird things. There's Anne Frank all over it. Um, I mean, personally, song-wise, I mean, if I had to go through them, um, King of Carrot Flowers Part 1, Aeroplane Over the Sea, Two-Headed Boy, Holland 1945. Communist Daughter is great because also it's really easy to play on the guitar. Um, and Oh Comely, which I would, should hate because it's long, and regular listeners to this will know that me and long tracks don't really work, but it just keeps going and building and doesn't stop and doesn't stop and eventually just gets to this amazing crescendo on what, three chords, I guess? Um, Most I like of it's his voice. two. <laughs> it probably is two. I mean, I think, I think this album is almost flawless um, for me, but also I'm aware that when albums are held up as flawless albums and classics, I'm a bit like Nick. I want to go, no, no. I mean, usually, I mean, friends of mine will know that they'll go, hey, you, you must try Bob Dylan. You must try Neil Young. And I'll go, no, this is shit. And about eight years later, they'll get an email from me going, oh, this Bob Dylan's all right. You know, or, or whatever. It'll take me a while to get around to it. But for this, this album is purely ingrained into me. There are certain loops and certain songs. Um, Every time in my life, every time someone says to me, what is this? I respond, a center for ants, because it's the line from Zoolander. I can't, I can't not. Um, and every time someone, someone said, uh, what is it? Uh, someone says, um, this wasn't the first time. I go, in fact, it was twice in a row. Like my brain will instinct, instinctively pull out the next lyric because it's the next line from that. And I can't help it. This is my Zoolander quote album. Um, I know it backwards from start to finish. And I think it is amazing. And Aaron I've got a feeling you're more my side than those guys. I, I will say that I am definitely more on your side. Um, I, I also came into this album um, with, a, with a similar thing to Nick in a way, in that I had some guy claim to me that it's the greatest album ever made, and I had to listen to it. Um, this is a little bit of a story, um, but I think it's funny because it makes me look like an idiot. But when I was 17 years old, my favorite band was Fish. PH Fish. P the PH Fish. The, 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 the one, the one that has fifty million different things on Spotify, and they're all different live shows. That Fish. I, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like it's like the, the the Grateful Dead of the '90s in a way. Um, they're my favorite band, and I really wanted to meet them. And I had this plan to meet them, so I went to this little musical, this little music festival in in uh, Wisconsin, and one of the bands playing there had a bass player that came from my tiny town of like a thousand people. And my dad was the editor for the newspaper. My thought was that I told my dad, I'm like, dad, this bass player is from our town. I should write an article about that bass player. And I'm going to talk to him at the music festival. So I sent him an email and I'm like, hey, man, you're from my town. My dad's the editor of the newspaper and he just gave me the thumbs up to write an article about your band. So my idea was that I was going to meet him backstage at the festival because I'd never been to a festival. I thought there was a backstage. It wasn't. And I thought when at the backstage, I was going to meet one of the other big bands that was playing at the festival that was playing at another festival where Fish was going to play at Bonnaroo. So I thought, OK, I'm going to meet this guy and he's going to, of course, I'm going to be so charismatic that he's going to introduce me to the other band and then the other band's going to introduce me to Fish. That was literally my thought process when I was 17. It didn't work uh, so out like that. I never met Fish. Um, that's the, basically, it was almost famous. You're just telling me the story for the movie Almost Famous. 
Yeah, except for Kate Hudson wasn't there. <laughs> unfortunately. Did you ever write the article? Um, I, I, I can't remember if I did. He wanted me to review the album. And I'm like, the, the local newspaper doesn't do album reviews, dude. I think that's what I told him. But here's the thing that I remember most from the from the interview is that he kept talking about Neutral Milk Hotel. And even at 17, I'm like, this is the dumbest name I've ever heard. The hell is this Neutral Milk Hotel? He's like, this album, man, it changed my life. Like everything we do, everything we live, we're chasing this. We're going to make our version. And, and it was just like folk music with a trombone in it. Like that was the band. But he's like, oh, we're going to do it. And so I came with this mixed thing because like, OK, this weird stoner guy from my town um thinks this is the greatest album of all time so it's like oh it came with a with a big thumbs up but i didn't really like his band very much um and the name was terrible so i kind of ignored it and then it came to me someone gave me an mp3 of it like i don't know 10 years later something like that it must have been 2009 and then i listened to it i'm like this is neutral milk hotel this is fantastic this is great i understand the 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 the, the, the crazy stone guy that added a, a trombone to his folk band and thought that he was doing something special um and i think it i think it is a really good album from 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 start to finish the the opening chords of um king of carrot flowers it just draws me in i think the whole album just propels you forward from one song from one song to the other um there's just so many moments that are just brilliant on here on the on the title track there's this point where um it gets really quiet and and all you hear is just squeaking it sounds like a bed squeaking and it's just a really subtle moment but like there's something really affecting about that there's for me this whole album is just is is just full of affect like it's it's just sounds like jeff mangum took like a cable and like injected it into his heart and he was playing directly out of it i I feel like his his emotions are so intense on this and a lot of it comes from just him belting through his super nasally screamy voice out of key um but but songs like oh comely like it's really hard for me to listen to that without actually like getting choked up sometimes because it his his sorrow just pours through every song even the happier seeming songs and i think also with the cacophony and the the weird instrumentation the accordions and the horns and i I just i just think it works just all the way through um i don't like a lot of the stuff it it influenced um i think it ruined open mic nights um for a (laughs) long time from People just thinking that the key to Neutral Milk Hotel is singing nasally out of key. Um, I've heard a lot of really, really bad versions of a two-headed boy at open mic nights. Um, but overall, um, this works. His out of key thing, yes, it's, it is annoying. I get why people hate it, but for me, it works. It just it, it, it vibrates right with me. And I'm not a lyrics guy, but I love the lyrics to this album. Um, like the first song, just it sounds like the film Gummo. I don't know if you guys have seen Gummo, um, but like yeah. the, the, the Harmony, first track kind of sounds like, like like the musical version of Gummo. Um, check, uh, check out Gummo um, on IMDb. I believe it's Harm, Harmony Corinne. Corinne, is that, yep. that was yeah. Gummo? That was his first film, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, before Kids. Uh, quickly on the album, on the, on the band name thing. I mean, I guess bands in America must have just had good names because... I grew up with bands called Pop Will Eat Itself, Ned's Atomic Dustbin, Gay Bikers on Acid, um, just terrible word salad band names. So Neutral Milk Hotel for me is just like, oh, okay, it's just another one of those, just another one of those, you know? Yeah, but um, there's, there's good word salad names and bad word salad names, though, aren't there? Like, you know, this is, this is, they're all, it's like three insipid words put together. <laughs> it, so it's just like a triumvirate of insipidness. It, insipidity? But surely the... 
that might surely that's the, the genius of the name. I mean, if it is insipid, but neutral is in there, it, it's it's even. I can't. I, I can't. I, yeah, I can't you, I'm trying. Uh, <laughs> and, to, and to be honest, you know what? If I liked them, I'd probably mount a defence too. I mean, that's the thing with a nonsense name, isn't it? But you know, I don't. So uh, fuck the name. <laughs> it's a bad name. So so when this album came out, it, it had good. It was well received, but it was later on that websites such as say Pitchfork went back and bumped it up from 98th best album of the of of the decade to fourth best album of the decade uh, bumped it up to giving it a 10 out of 10 um by this point jeff had basically disappeared um but i mean he was offered they were offered a, a, a touring slot with rem uh turned it down he got stressed had nervous breakdown vanished uh, to the point that he was often referred to as the J.D. Salinger of indie rock because he literally had vanished off the face of the planet and there was more myth and legend than anything else. Um, do we think that the fact that the band then disappeared and the fact that you couldn't find Jeff anywhere and the other members of the band went on to various other musical uh, endeavours, uh, Hawk and a Hacksaw being one of yeah. them, Jeff totally vanished to the point that no journalist could find him to the point that no fans had spotted him um occasionally there'd be some weird field recordings turn up on a website or he'd turn up years later playing two acoustic songs in a parking lot outside a gig and then vanish again do we think that that myth and mythos and ethos mythos um helped create this retrospective uh viewing of the album do you think that because he disappeared People look back and then went, oh, actually, this was better than we thought. What do we think? Lyle, you're in the middle of camera-wise. Also, you're probably <laughs> in the middle opinion-wise. This is quite good. <laughs> on my left, listener, is, is Nick. On my right is Aaron. <laughs> and in the middle, in the middle of the neutral Milk Hotel is, is Lyle. What, do, what happened to make them so big retrospectively? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's like why I'm sitting here <laughs> just like... I. <laughs> I'm sitting I mean, here with more questions than answers. Um, yeah, because I because I almost look at that scene and I think that that's just such a that just fits in with the rules of that scene. You get big, you get to a point where REM wants you on tour, and you're like, no, I'm happy just kind of like living in an apartment in a small town, playing the coffee shops every once in a while. Like, I don't need to go up to that next level. That next level is not a place that I should even go to. Now, I don't know if that's how things turned out. Maybe, um, you know, maybe there was some mental health issues there. As far as the the, the myth, I mean, I like I love that for you, too. It, it emotionally resonates for you. But as I'm sitting here, I'm like wondering, like, I want some psychologist to do a big study on why this album affects some people one way and why it totally affects people in a different way, because um I, I don't know what that is yet. Yeah. I mean, well, that's I mean, that's music. I mean, generally, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we got, I mean, at this point, I mean, I think there was one interview, conversa one conversation in 2002 with, with Pitchfork, and I'm going to quote, uh, he said, I went through a period after Aeroplane where a lot of the basic assumptions I held about reality started crumbling. I guess I had this idea that if we all created our dream, uh, probably music, we could live happily ever after. So when many of our dreams had come true and people, my friends were still in pain, I saw the pain from a different perspective and realized I can't just sing my way out of this suffering. And then, then he totally vanished. 
Um, there was one journalist who tried to find him and kept looking for him. Eventually, he got an email back from him going, "No, I'm just some, I'm just some guy who wants to be left alone." Um, until at some point, he came back. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, I mean, why do you think some albums have a different? People have a different view of them when they look back on it. Is are they affected by what pe- the general sort of groundswell towards it? Is there this sort of myth that changes people's perceptions? What or what? Of course, I mean, I think I think the the context of the album is is hugely important. You can't, you, you know, you, you always get people sort of trying to to talk about this stuff in some sort of uh, objective way, but it just doesn't exist. That's how how music works, and your feelings about it are inextricably wrapped up with the story. And frankly, on the basis of the story alone, I really want to like this album. There's a lot about it, the mythos and the around it that makes it intriguing, just infuriatingly. And this is probably why I get so angry is the is because I really want it to work, and it just doesn't for me. And I get that it does for you, and that's the thing. It's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, say, well, you guys are wrong to like it. <laughs> Obviously not. I think, I, you know, I'm just annoyed that I don't. I mean, I, I totally get that it could be a difficult, a difficult one, and I could see that I could very easily have not liked it. There's certain things about it that could I could have easily gone down the other side. Um, and when I did start to hear the story, read the stories about how uh, he was starting to have dreams about actually owning a time machine and going back and rescuing Anne Frank and then walking around his apartment basically with a dressing gown on, strumming and making these songs about these dreams he's having and this obsession he's having with Anne Frank and obviously the Holocaust therein. Um, That sort of story about an album usually puts me off, if I'm honest. I go, oh, whatever, man, come on. Get, get a hold on but for some reason it just seems to work for me for this maybe it's because they came to it after they'd dis- after they'd broken up and after they'd vanished and they, they weren't even a band if they carried on releasing stuff maybe that myth wouldn't that mythos and the look back would it's like when bill hicks died two dvds brilliant he's done he's, he's released nothing since to ruin his to ruin his reputation uh, whereas some bands have had to keep going and keep going and then they release a bad album and then they get a bit fat and then you go, oh my God, Jesus, Bono's let himself go. Don't know why I chose Bono. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> whereas this was a cutoff, was a cutoff and gone. And you don't get many mysteries in music anymore. You know, like, where did they go? What happened to them? Usually you know what happened to them. Yeah. They're, they're knocking around somewhere or they appear on, they appear on some, oh, where are they now? Um, VH1 documentary, or or like the, the, the what was it what was that? the Canadian punk thing? Was it Sum Forty One? And then I saw, I saw a picture of him like twenty years later. Go, oh my sweet Jesus, he has not aged well. Um, this would have happened to Jeff Mangum, but he wasn't there for it to to happen to, right? I mean, um, I, I have no, I have this, this, I have, I'm not, I have no wrap up for this bit of talking. I'm just hoping someone else starts talking. Aaron, no, no one else has. <laughs> I think that I think the fact that he disappeared is one of the main things that did. I, I think I, I started liking this album before I actually knew the story of him disappearing. To be honest, um, and it it did resonate with me, but um, I think a lot of it came down to the fact that all these people were talking about, it, all these people were being influenced by it, and it just started building and building. When you get like the Arcade Fire, who's like. Oh my God! Like I, I, we, we, we do everything we do because we really want to make our own version of "In the Aeroplane Over the Sea," and everyone's like, "Oh, the Arcade Fire!" Back when people didn't hate them, I would be like, "Oh yeah, that was a really good thing," you know. And it's, it, I think 
so many people were influenced by them. I think in the in the early two thousands, you couldn't you couldn't throw a rock into a into a bar without hitting some guy that was in a band that was like, "Let's add some accordions to our indie rock." You know, that was just the thing. <laughs> um, oh God! So are they responsible for things like Fleet Foxes and stuff? Yeah, like that? yeah. That, I, I mean, that's, I think Foxes. that's a lot of it. Where that where they came from, like Beirut. I, well, I love Beirut. Like I love a lot of that stuff. Um, Devochka, all that, like that Balkan folk, European folk music mixed with american indie rock type thing i mean that's i think that it might have started from other people but this is for me where where it feels like that that big obsession came from um but that's i also think why, go ahead sorry no no go ahead i was gonna say that's probably the best answer because the more i think about that like the decemberists i mean all these bands were naming i think the reason why this album was revisited and um you know reassessed was oh yeah look at everything that came after them. I mean, I, I, I hear a lot of the Decemberists in, in an airplane over the sea, but the Decemberists uh, have a better singer and better musicians. Um, and I think that's kind of what happened is just people um, who could play their instruments better did a better job with that style. But then it's like when people hold up uh, Daniel Johnston and, and you, can, you listen to Daniel Johnston go, can't, he can't play the piano and he can't play the guitar and he can't sing. And he doesn't know how to finish writing a song, but there's amazing genius here in this amateurish wonder. Uh, and I guess there is that. But then maybe having someone who is influenced by you, who is technically better, and maybe it loses something when they are technically better. Um, I was going to say, Nick, one thing we didn't want to... One of the few times Jeff Mangum resurfaced over the years was he basically uploaded an album which was just f- field recordings of Bulgarian folk music because he went to Bul- Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. There was some folk music. He recorded it, uploaded it to, to the website, and then dis- disappeared for another five or six years. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's what happened. And then he came back. All of a sudden, um, after all the articles saying they're never going to appear again, Jeff Mangum announced he was going to do uh, a solo tour. Um, it took me an hour to get the tickets, and that hour was five pages on Ticketmaster loading so slowly because it was collapsing under the weight of people trying to buy tickets to this one show at Union Chapel in London. And obviously he played stuff in, uh, in America as well. Um, he did this solo tour, and then the band reformed and toured for a year or two, but I, I miss that. Um, I will say, um, my favorite song, one of my favorite songs of all time is True Love Will Find You in the End by Daniel Johnston. And when Jeff Mangum sang that and as one of the final tracks at Union Chapel in London, I openly cried, and I don't give a shit. I just wept and wept and wept, and at the end of it, uh, went home. And um, yeah, so but anyway, why did they go? I mean, how? It's not like they came back for the money, right? It's like most people that come back, with, yeah, new album, I, money. Did it? Can you? Do you have any proof that they didn't come back for the money? And, and why shouldn't they? I don't find, have. You know? I don't have yeah. proof for anything I say on this podcast. What is, I mean, when you as you were telling that story, I was just thinking there's a guy who knows how to orchestrate a comeback tour. Yeah. <laughs> Because here's the thing, they didn't. It's not. It's not like like Jeff went and recorded a bunch of new songs or anything for it. He just went and did the same thing. And I think, and this is this is going to be Jeff. If you're listening to this, um, I'm really sorry. This is this is not personal. I think one of the reasons he left is he had nothing left in the tank. I think he had two albums. That was it. Um, He was all like, if you look on, if you listen to On Avery Island and listen to In the Airplane Over the Sea. Like a lot of those songs in there sound like rehashings of the same songs. The the melody for um what was it? 
track three peaches three peaches mm. sounds a lot like oh comely like you listen to stuff we're going to talk about of course ferris wheel on fire um some of that stuff li- sounds the same he's been rehashing the same songs again then, and again you know, if that's same true melodic tricks i don't think he had anything left and i think you realize i don't think he could have made another album that would have been anything but a just the same album again and if it's true then that's entirely to his credit that he chose to stop you know, that's like, because uh, there was the same, like Linton Quasi Johnson said that when he, like he did two or three albums in the early 80s and then spent the rest of his career with people asking, why don't you do more stuff? And he said, I don't want to be that guy. I know I've done my best stuff already and I don't want to do the diminishing returns thing. And, you know, I think that's a credit to an artist who can recognize I've done my best work now. I'm not going to improve on it. Um, you just heard Nick say that that, that was Neutral Milk Hotel's best work. So we're going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, also because of the time. Um, so they, came Island, back, <laughs> they came back. They, 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 they did the, the money box set, basically, um, which did have obviously nice versions of, of vinyl versions of singles, B-sides, uh, the albums. Um, not Hype City, oddly enough, um, but then also had Ferris Wheel on Fire, which we'll I'll not talk about massively, but we'll talk about just a little bit. Ferris Wheel on Fire, which was um, basically all but one had been unreleased, and that one was Engine coming back, which was quite a nice bit of symmetry. First album, first release, last release. Um, and yes, they sound like different versions of the songs that be, most of them sound like different versions of the songs that populated the two main albums. I think it's great. I mean, I I I think um, Oh Sister, like the opener, I think is absolute banger, and I think it might be one of their better tracks that should have been on one of the albums. Um, I think. I mean, that follow that follows off with uh, Ferris Wheel on Fire. Um, I will bury you in time. It's a great track. Um, I don't. I, I think it was a nice thing to come back with, and it does sort of show um, evolution of a band and. You know, it's nice when you get those sort of B-sides, particularly if those B-sides have somehow been hidden for 20 years. Because usually, I don't know how a band like Neutral Milk Hotel with the rabid fan base and people desperately wanting some information managed to have a bunch of songs that no one had fucking heard. Because someone would have released that on the internet, right? I mean, Radio had all, had, had all their stuff stolen and released on the internet. They had to pretend they were going to give it to charity. I mean, how did Neutral Milk Hotel have these have a couple of tracks that didn't get out? Um, I'm gonna. I, I mean, I would ask Nick, but he'll probably go. I, I can't remember it. So, Lyle, did you listen to Ferris Wheel on Fire? Yeah, I did. Um, what are your uh, thoughts? Um, uh, I guess I yeah, I agreed with you. Oh, sister was good. Home, a baby for pre. I find mainly with with them. Um, I don't I don't like the ballads. I like the stuff that rocks a little bit more, but um, yeah, it was it was all good demos that I would have liked to have heard uh, produced a little bit more. But then maybe overproduced, they become that cacophony that uh, drove me <laughs> off. I mean, yeah. I like I like O Sister. I'm not sure I'd like it with bagpipes. Um, Aaron, <laughs> I mean, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I mean, this is more of a sort of a wrap up album, but it came out, and you know, obviously, I mean, it's 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 out there to to listen to. Aaron, I mean, are these do these tracks stand out for you? Or are they all substandard? Knock substandard should have been left in a. Bucket. I don't know. I wouldn't say they're substandard. It just it just kind of sounds like one of those uh, morning radio shows. Like, oh, we got Jeff Magnum in the studio with his acoustic guitar. You know, there's two feel good news stories, and like, here's him playing an acoustic version of Babies for Pre. You know, it's 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 nice stuff. I, I did one thing I did want to notice is my dreamed girl doesn't exist. Green days when I come around. Oh yeah, exact same riff. Uh, uh. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, which which was first? Uh, Green Day. This, this would have been 
Dream Girl Diaries was 96. When was when I come around? Oh, yeah. It was like 93, 92. 93 or so, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. Um, so, so basically what we're trying to say is that uh, Green Day is the reason that Nutramilk Hotel exists. That is a nice bit of a wrap-up, I guess. I mean, we, we haven't spent... Uh, we, I mean, let, uh, why don't we finish on... If it wasn't for Green Day, Nutramilk Hotel wouldn't have existed, and we wouldn't be doing this, and we're not going to be doing Green Day either. Um, okay, Nick, I, I, to be honest, the fact that you liked one of them is more than I expected. That's 50% of their... Um... Studio album discography, yeah, I mean, isn't it? Going. You know, it's, it's, you like, it's your return. You liked more of Neutral Milk Hotel than I did of uh, Can, so I still win. <laughs> <laughs> um, I might have liked more mean, of I might have liked more of Neutral Milk Hotel than I liked of Can, but that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't make them the better band. <laughs> that just means Can did a lot of shit. Yeah, but that's it. Maybe like this is the, this is the thing we were talking about earlier on. Um, He's put so much into those two albums. It left him emotionally spent, maybe creatively spent. He disappeared. If Can had disappeared uh, at the end, well, when we if you go back and listen to the podcast, we did two episodes of Can. There's basically one episode which everybody apart from me said this is really good, and one episode of uh, it's not as bad as I thought it was. But maybe if Can had disappeared into some myth, oh for sure, yeah. After like uh, what, future future days, future, future days, yeah. That would be the place where they probably should have stopped. If they'd vanished and no one knew who they were or where they were, then maybe they'd they'd have that myth as well. Sure, Um, sure. Okay, so we didn't really dwell on on the final bits of B-Sides that came out, but obviously it's a band that has two main albums. And to be honest, we've talked more about this band and their two albums than some episodes with four or five or or, or six albums. Um, Lyle, thank you ever so much um, for coming back on. I'm not going to ask you to do a Jeff Mangum impression this time. Oh, go on. But, but were there any hey. Ramones moments? <laughs> there you go. See, he'd, he'd be preparing that because he knew you'd ask. <laughs> oh, and I forgot to go. Were there any OOO moments on the, in the aeroplane over the sea? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> King of Carrot Flowers 3, Ramones, OOO. There you go. That's oh, my notes. Uh, yeah. but that was it. That track was the first track of Hype City soundtrack. That came back up oh, and over okay. we go. It was the same. It was it was a track trying to find a home. And live at Jittery Jones, he had the Jesus one. He didn't. He needed to put that somewhere. And then he went, "Oh, I've got these two half finished songs. I just put them together and go." Oh, oh, oh. Um, Aaron, um, thank you ever so much for your hard work. Thank you for coming back on, and thank you for not making me the only Neutral Milk Hotel fan on this episode. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm glad that we finally found an album that we both like. I mean, it's. Yeah, that is that is weird. Weird. I don't know if I like it as much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, basically, I've just ruined In the Airplane Over the Sea for, for, for Aaron by liking it, so maybe we should call it quits there. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming on. And Nick, it's been time. an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Huge thank you to everybody who took part in this show. We welcome back temporary fandom stalwart Aaron T. White, whose introductions were wonderful as always. And if you're in Norway, go and check out his stand-up show. I don't know, you might be. Thanks also to Lyle Wagenek, who no longer has a fly in his milk, for which fact I find myself strangely disappointed. Cheers also to Ewan, my assiduous co-host, 
and to Jonathan Fisher for cooking up our awesome theme tune. If you like us, don't forget we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash tempfans. We're just looking to cover our costs so we can keep doing this show. There are so many amazing bands we still want to share with you. And if you can't afford to bung us a few euros every month, then just leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or something. It really helps. I hope you enjoyed Neutral Milk Hotel, and whether you did or not, we're sure to tackle a band you love soon. Keep listening. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and one day we'll die, and our ashes will fly from the aeroplane over the sea. <laughs>